everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Column podcast. My name is uh, William Lutz, a host of the podcast. And if you're listening to me, um, I want to apologize for the way I sound. I'm battling some type of sinus crud, maybe a cold. I don't know what it is, but um, it's not been the most pleasant of experiences, but I still feel I could go out and do the things that I do on a regular basis and function as a normal adult. It just makes me sound a little weird and stuffed up and very nasally. And so if uh, you find the side of my voice uh, very offensive, I apologize sincerely for that, but these things are going to happen. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of folks that just are are very interested in the things that we talk about here on a on a weekly basis, and so it's like we've got to provide the listeners with what they want, and so regardless of how I sound, we're going to continue to work through all of those types of issues, and we're going to continue on with this project. <laughs> so uh, yesterday on my own personal Facebook page, I uh, shared an article that I saw from the Atlantic talking about uh, Americans strongly disliking PC culture. And one of the interesting things that came from the article was that among the general population, a full 80% believe that political correctness is a problem in our country. Even young people are uncomfortable with it, including 74% of those aged 24 to 29 and 79% of those under age 24. Uh, The, Paragraph concludes by saying on this particular issue, uh, the woke are are in a clear minority across all ages. And that led to a pretty interesting discussion. In fact, uh, one of our tried and true listeners, Scott, asked, um, Bill, you're in government. How do you balance working for the majority that elected you versus protecting the minority's needs? While elected by a majority, you still represent all of Troy. Yes. Well, a little bit of backstory is that um, I am also an elected official. I am serving my first term on city council in the city of Troy as an at-large member. Um, Our city council (coughs) has uh, 10 members. Um, We are led by a president of council. Uh, Her name is Marty Baker, and Mrs. Baker does not get to vote on any legislation unless there's a tie. But um, she is responsible for running the meetings, and she also assigns items that come up for uh, resolutions and ordinances, kind of the stuff we talk about to different committees. So those are her major responsibilities. And then there's nine of us on council. Six of us uh, come from separate wards or districts within the community in which uh, only individuals within that ward or district vote on those individuals. Uh, but myself and two other individuals, we are elected at large, which means uh, everybody in the community gets to vote on us. And so right now I'm in the middle of my first term on city council. It is a two-year term, and it's really hard to believe, but we'll have to be thinking about re-election here very shortly. Um, the uh, nominating petitions are due in February which might seem like a long time, but you do want to get out and get signatures and begin kind of uh, laying the the groundwork for a successful campaign. And all of that does take some time and effort and energy. And so 
Um, it's just, just part of the work that goes into it. <coughs> oh, excuse me. So getting back to, uh, to Scott's question of, you know, how do you balance the working for the majority that elected you against, um, the, the minority, uh, majority voted for me, but how do you protect the minority rights through all of that? And it's a really good question, but I think we have to, to take a step back. Um, I was elected in a contested race um, in the primary in May of 2017. And in that election, I received just a handful of, of votes as compared to the entire community. And so that was 900 votes that I received. That was enough to get me elected in a community of 25,000 people. So it's very difficult for um myself to believe that a majority of residents elected me to my position when in fact it was a clear minority. And, and what I've learned is that there's very few majorities out there. There's just a lot of little minorities. There's a lot of little groups who care about one particular issue or one particular item. And that's kind of what they care about. That's their bread and butter issue, whether that be particularly in our case, uh, whether that's bike lanes or zoning issues or traffic issues or, or whatever it is. It's not like there's a majority out there. It's just that there's a lot of little minorities and, and people shift from minorities. And so there's not a, a clear cut constituent that you know is going to be checking off all the boxes on particular issues and you can put them nicely in one category. Um, it's one thing that gets me fairly upset about the way we treat um, political discourse in America today. There are very, very few people that check all the boxes of one particular ideology over another. Uh, I think we're all just kind of a mix and a hybrid of ideas. And when we go into a voting booth or we think about things in a political nature, uh, we do kind of have to pick a side and, and whatever we look at in terms of what we value the most, um, that's kind of the side we go on. But when we tear it all down, there's going to be a lot of areas in which people on different uh, sides of the political aisle will actually agree with. And we see those agreements probably more on the local level than we do the national level. Um, you know, uh, spending a half a million dollars that you have budgeted for uh, putting in new water lines in an old part of town where they need replaced is not necessarily the most burning partisan political issue you'll ever have. Um, and folks from both parties could agree on, you know, you got to put in the water lines. <clears throat> so what does that mean that my job is as kind of an elected official? Well, you know, I have to do a balancing act between these minority groups as they're always talking and negotiating about things that they want. And that puts me in a position of being not much of a policy developer, but a policy decider. Which policies can the city undertake that will make our community a better place? Um, for the future 
and for the vast majority of residents. And again, you know, these are not hard partisan issues, but you do have to, you do have to take a lot of time and you have to take a lot of effort and energy to realize that the policies that council is asked to adopt will have ramifications on the future. And that's really what the most important job of a city council member is. <coughs> now, now being in Troy, we have kind of a different system. Um, we have a, a chief administrative officer and, and his, he is the director of public service and safety. And we have a chief executive officer and that's the mayor. Most communities, um, and when I say most, probably about two thirds to three quarters, um, their mayor's not the chief executive officer, but rather they hire a city manager and the city manager is there to run the day-to-day affairs of the city. Well, we don't have that in Troy. We have a mayor and we have a, a service and safety director, but the dynamics are, are, are somewhat similar. Um, the mayor and the public service and safety director, kind of the administration, as we call them, they propose things to come up and their idea of proposing things um, are largely grounded in their uh, facts, in their studies, in past plans in, in things that they believe is right for the city at this moment. And it is, it, it is highly um, divorced from any political consideration, or at least ideally that's the way it's supposed to be. And so these uh, pieces of legislation come in front of council and they ask for approving. And 99 times out of 100, uh, there's not a, a compelling reason uh, not to go along with what the administration wants. Um, these are the people that have studied the issue. They get paid to study the issue. They get paid to make recommendations. We know that whatever comes up is not going to be um, controversial. It's not going to be a problem. These are just base, These are just the basic things you need to do to run a city. It's that simple. But occasionally there are those things that come up that you do need to have a little more, <coughs> excuse me, a little more um, of a political nuance to really um, look through and, and have that lens play a role rather than just kind of the uh, non-political fact-based lens that you're looking at. Uh, a case in point is that earlier this year, um, our city council took a seven to one vote on rezoning eight acres of land um, that abuts a residential subdivision. A developer asked to have this land rezoned from agricultural residential to um, uh, just a residential uh, zone, which would allow more houses to be built on this eight acre lot. The one thing that was not brought forward was that roughly 90% of this land is in a FEMA designated flood zone. And so in our zoning code, we have what we call a floodplain overlay district. 
And it's pretty clear in our zoning code that development should not be um, promoted or enhanced in floodplain areas. Um, it was not in a floodway, which is more of a an area where floodwaters would come through, but it's more of a floodplain, which means that if we were to receive one of those FEMA-designated thousand-year um, storms, um, water would collect in this area and it could be, it could not be a catastrophic, uh, disaster, but it would still be a disaster. There would probably be property damage and things of that nature. So I was the only one who voted against this measure. And I was very clear that, you know, I, the property was in a floodplain, which nobody, um, disagreed with. Um, but the administration said, well, you don't need to take that into consideration because we will make sure that the houses are built above the floodplain, <clears throat> which I, I can understand that. But still, if there is a flooding event, getting people in and out of a floodplain where there's water um, is not going to be an easy thing to do if that needed to happen. And, and let's be honest. Floods cause more damage. Floods cause more loss of life. Um, floods are the largest disasters that hit America um, more than anything else. And this could be honestly really personal because I've been on four mission trips with my church to areas in which um, were damaged by either hurricanes or floods. And even where you go to the places that were damaged by hurricanes, they'll say that it was the flooding, it was the water, it was the storm surge that caused more damage than the wind itself. And we're going through houses that have, that from the outside look good, but you go onto the inside and they're just like totally destroyed. So you've got to tear out all of the plaster or the drywall take things back down to the studs and, and, and re-drywall them and mud it out and just, oh, it's horrible. And the first trip I went to, uh, that I went on, I went to New Orleans and this was about five or six years after Katrina and there were still houses being worked on. Now, I take those experiences and I think about this floodplain issue in our own community. And it's like, you know, why would we allow houses to be built in an area that is flood prone that would cause damage that would make life harder for the folks that live there? If a, if a disaster were to occur and those types of arguments that I made didn't, they, they kind of fell on deaf ears because they put a lot of stock and faith in the administration's feeling that this was not, we could not deny the zoning just because it was in a floodplain. Um, but I took a whole different reading of our zoning code. Our zoning code empowers our city council to take a look at things um, like environmental conditions and make a best judgment on those types of issues. And so my best judgment, it was like, if we could take environmental 
environmental concerns into consideration. There is no reason for us to have houses built in a floodplain. <clears throat> and so maybe that was a, an, an interesting um, story of how we try to balance some of the different things that come into play as we make decisions on city council. Um, interesting part of the story is that um, the residents that saw this were not pleased, um, especially those in kind of the adjacent um, residential area because they had flooding concerns too. And they felt that if there were flooding concerns that, that they were having, having more houses built next to them would only increase those concerns. And so they went around and they got signatures to put it on a ballot as a referendum measure. In Ohio, if a city council adopts an ordinance or a resolution, um, residents can go out, get signatures, and take it to the Board of Elections. And basically, that stalls that ordinance from taking into effect until the residents uh, vote on it at an election. And so I was like, okay. Um, once the residents got enough signatures and the board of elections certified that it was going to be on the ballot, um, the developer basically kind of rescinded their application and city council went along with it. So basically that land stayed in the agriculture residential district. And that was the end of that. Um, nobody's going to get a vote on it. Um, funny thing is, is that it was part of that land was put into a different project, which was much larger. Um, that land is now being rezoned for development. And you're thinking, well, why did you allow that to happen, Lutz? Because when you looked at the plans, they're putting in a retention pond, which basically covered the entire area of where um, those houses were originally going to be built under the first proposal. And so it was like, this, this makes sense. So that's why we, that's why I went ahead and voted for it. I think every council member voted for it. And so that's kind of how those things go. Um, at the end of the day, council becomes kind of the conscience of the community in terms of uh, values and the ethics that it wants to uphold in terms of what this community wants to be. I'm not saying the administration doesn't do that, but that's not the administration's job. Uh, they're there to propose items that are fact-based and make sense for the community <laughs> based on past practice or based on practices of other communities that have done it well. And we become a filter uh, on council in which most of the community's feelings and thoughts and ideas kind of get transmitted into some of that legislation. And you'll see those things come up later. I, I know you will. Um, and really, those things aren't really in conflict a lot of times. Like I said, you know, 99 times out of 100, there's no conflict um, between what the administration wants to do and kind of the general consciousness of the community. But there are times where that does happen. And then and council has to kind of play a more enhanced role of, of, of being that, that, that voice of consciousness in the project. And so um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, Scott. I hope this answers your question. We rambled on quite a bit. 
Um, but you know, that's, that's what I get to do on this. And I hope you enjoyed this ish, uh, this edition of the beyond the column podcast. Feel free to tweet us at beyond the column, send us an email beyond the column podcast at gmail.com. Look for us on Facebook, facebook.com slash beyond the column. Looking forward to talking to you again next week, but I'm really looking forward to getting rid of whatever this is in my head and in my nose. And I apologize for all the coughing and all that other uh, unpleasantries that this has caused. So have a great week, everybody. Thank you.